Night Markets, Rainbow Grandpa, and Three Cups Monkey Head Mushroom. This week, we're in Taiwan. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, and this is Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Thanks for joining me. Each week, we're sampling cuisine from a different place around the world, and this week, it's Taiwan. Taiwan seems so exotic and cool, and I've got Wendy Werneth, the nomadic vegan, to talk all about it. Wendy's an author and travel blogger who's been to countries all over the world. Her website, thenomadicvegan.com, talks about her adventures and how to eat vegan in countries all over the globe. With me, she breaks down some of the differences between Taiwan and China, all the culinary influences in Taiwan, and why Taiwan is a great place to travel for vegans. Plus, she talks about night markets and street food and a crazy dish called Three Cups Monkey Head Mushroom. And you don't want to miss the story Wendy tells about Rainbow Grandpa. Even the most cynical person will find it heartwarming. Destination Eat Drink. Wendy, the nomadic vegan, you're back again for more fun and excitement on Destination Eat Drink. Thanks for thanks for being back on the show. Um, last time we talked about India, and that was great. And I wanted to have you back to talk a little bit about Taiwan. But um, before we go into this, we, we talked a little bit about uh, being vegan in the last episode. And I'll have a link to that podcast episode in the show notes. But for folks who aren't familiar or who are just listening to this podcast for the first time, uh, give a quick thumbnail about what it means to be vegan. Sure. I'll just do it really quickly. Um, being vegan basically just means living in a way where you try to avoid harming or causing unnecessary suffering to animals to the extent that that is possible in your daily life. So um, that does mean not eating animals, which I guess would be pretty obvious, um, and also not eating um, eggs, dairy products, uh, their bodily secretions, because uh, there is a lot of suffering in those industries as well that a lot of people don't realize. Um, and then it also impacts other um, choices that we make in daily life about, you know, not wearing leather or wool or things like that, um, choosing cosmetics and other, you know, hygiene products that have not been tested on animals. And, uh, yeah, just trying to avoid harming them to the extent possible. So that's a good thumbnail of, of what it means to be vegan. You're the nomadic vegan. You've been all over the world traveling as a vegan person. And I wanted to talk to you today about Taiwan because Taiwan is another spot that I haven't been to. But I had uh, now you're based in Europe, so you may not know this guy, but uh, Joseph Rizendo does a popular travel show in the U.S. called Travel Scope, and he was on my podcast and just raved about Taiwan. So this really, you know, put up my antenna to think about going to Taiwan because I feel like I don't know a lot about Taiwan. I mean, occasionally you'll see a, a news story pop up in the media when, you know, some political situation happens. But I, I'm really unfamiliar with Taiwan other than that. And I thought maybe we could start by you talking about your 
observation you're feeling about going to Taiwan, and you've been to China too. What are some of the similarities and differences between China and Taiwan? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. There are a lot of differences. I mean, I have been to China a number of times. I have a pretty good understanding of the country. I actually studied Chinese for several years and then um, put it on the back burner for a few years. And now recently I've been taking it up again and trying to uh, get my Chinese back up to speed. So I went uh, on three different study trips to China and I've also just traveled around as a tourist uh, all over the country as well. Uh, but I had not been to Taiwan. I'd been six uh, six different trips, I think, to, to uh, China. And then I hadn't been to Taiwan until 2019. And yeah, it definitely feels very different. I will say I also went to China in 2019 as part of the same trip. So I was able to experience them back to back. And China in 2019 felt, I guess, oppressive is perhaps the word I would use. Mm. Um, I did feel like there was um, lots of control over people and, you know, watching what people were doing and keeping track of where they were going, Uh, not just foreigners, but also Chinese people. So, for example, anytime you walk into any bus station or any train station, you have to show your ID um, or you scan your ID electronically uh, if you're a Chinese person uh, and you have a Chinese ID um, or in the case of foreigners, you have to show your passport manually to to someone who checks it. Um, And there were also checkpoints set up like that around Tiananmen Square and uh, just in kind of random places. And so, yeah, and of course, you know, you have the Internet censorship. You're not allowed to use Facebook or any kind of Google product. So that means no Google Maps, no Gmail, um, no Pinterest or Twitter or Instagram, um, which it was the first time in several years that I'd been to China. So I wasn't a travel blogger (laughs) before and I wasn't really using a lot of social media. And then to go back and try to be a digital nomad and be working online in that kind of environment uh, was very challenging. So then leaving China and coming going to Taiwan, it felt very liberating, you know, because <laughs> right. suddenly I was allowed to use all those things again. And I didn't have the feeling that people were watching me and keeping tabs on where I was going. I do have a question about logistics because China and Taiwan have this sort of fractious relationship. Is it possible to travel directly Um, from China to Taiwan, or do you have to make an intermediate stop to get there? No, you can fly directly from China to Taiwan, uh, which is what we did. So, uh, yeah, that wasn't always the case, I don't think. Um, I know that wasn't always the case, and I'm not sure exactly when they changed that. But uh, yeah, currently anyway, as far as I know, I mean, of course, international travel is right. uh, kind of up in the air, you know, all over the world. So I don't know what kind of links there are at the moment, but yeah, you were able to travel directly between the two. So going to Taiwan, you have this this new culture shock of going from China to Taiwan. What were some of your favorite places to visit in Taiwan? What are some of the things that you saw that you really enjoyed? 
I really loved the country as a whole. Um, it's a great little microcosm, a little miniature introduction to uh, Chinese a culture and East Asian culture, I would say, um, because it's a tiny island. You can get around really easily and, you know, see the whole thing in three weeks very easily. If you have two weeks, you can just about see the whole island in two weeks as well. And it has incredible nature spots and then lots of several really cool cities to check out as well. Obviously, I loved Taipei, but another one that really kind of surprised me was Taichung, which is not far from Taipei. It's, uh, I want to say, maybe like an hour uh, maybe a little, uh, less than an hour south of Taipei. And it often gets skipped over. People just, um, you know, head straight to Taipei or to uh, other locations further away and don't really think about Taichung. But it has a real kind of hip up and coming arts and culture scene. And so if you like that kind of stuff, uh, there's some really cool museums and uh, art galleries and things like that to check out. Um, my favorite, by far my favorite experience in Taichung was going to a place called Rainbow Village. I read about this in your blog about Rainbow Village and Rainbow Grandpa. Talk about that a little bit because it just sounds fantastic. It really was. I just found it so inspiring and just such a feel-good story. Rainbow Grandpa, uh, he was a former soldier and he lived in what they call a military dependence village. So it's not exactly a village because it's more like a housing complex. It is within the city limits of Taichung, but kind of on the outskirts of the city. But, you know, it's not a tiny village surrounded by rural countryside. It's it's more of a housing district uh, within a city that was built specifically to house these soldiers and their families. And then he lived there for decades. And uh, over the years, you know, people moved away and um, older people started to die off. And in the end, he was the only person left in this housing complex that originally housed something like 1,200 people. Wow. And so the government wanted to tear it down. In fact, a lot of it had been torn down already. And he there was just his building and a few other buildings surrounding his that were left standing. And he got a letter, a notification saying that they were going to tear down his house and the rest of the houses as well. And uh, he was really sad. He was, I believe, in his 80s at this point. And he didn't want to leave. That was his home. That was, you know, all that he knew. He didn't have anywhere else to go. He lived completely alone. So he started painting the walls, uh, starting with the his bedroom wall uh, inside his house. And then he started painting outside his outside house walls as well. And then the walls of the abandoned buildings on, on either side of him. And uh, he was painting kind of childish drawings that he had learned to paint when he was a very young child. He hadn't painted since his childhood, but his father had been an artist or at least, you know, had some artistic talent and so had taught Rainbow Grandpa how to how to draw and how to paint these kind of uh, animal figures and, and things like that. And so that's what he started painting and he just kept going and eventually people noticed it. Uh, it was actually 
close to a university. So there was a university student who was walking past one night and saw him painting and asked what he was doing. And um, he told her the story about, you know, how they were going to tear down his house and he didn't want that to happen. He didn't want to leave. And so she, um, you know, rounded up support for him among the university students and professors. And they all signed a petition and petitioned the government to to keep his house, to allow him to keep his house. And it worked. And now it's become the biggest tourist attraction in the whole city. People come from all over the country and from other countries as well to see, yeah, what has now become known as Rainbow Village because he painted all of the buildings that were left in these really bright, beautiful colors. And he's 96 years old and he's still going. He still gets out and paints every single morning. Oh, great. I I love this story for so many reasons because, I, first of all, I love street art. Mm. When we lived in Hawaii, we lived in this part of Honolulu that was world-renowned for its street art. So I, I love street art, but I also love this story. It's it's also a very charming story, but it also like flips the street art story on its head because normally it's the young people who are doing the street art and old folks mm. like me walk by and discover it and make it popular. And this is the exact opposite of that, which makes it really even more interesting, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. You know, and I don't think he had, you know, much idea about social media and how, you right. know, this was going to go wild. He's like, I'm going to be an Instagram and- star. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be a social media influencer. <laughs> Yeah, somehow I don't think that that was part of his plan. I don't really know what he thought was going to happen, but I'm sure that he never imagined that it would grow to be something so big as it has become. And he's really touched so many people's lives. I actually got to meet him when I was there. He was sitting in, they have a little kind of gift shop area And he has volunteers who who work with him, work for him there. Um, And he was there to to meet and greet people. And uh, he gave me a printout of one of his drawings and was very, very kind. Um, Unfortunately, now, you know, because of the pandemic, he's not meeting people anymore because obviously he's in a very high risk group. Right, right. But as far as I know, he's he's still alive and well and, and kicking and still painting his heart out. And he saved his home, which is, you know, probably yeah. the most, imp- you know, we taught, we joke about being an Instagram influencer, but hey man, he saved his house. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's quite an achievement. And, um, you know, I, it seems that he's really happy in his final days, which is wonderful. So you're the nomadic vegan and Taipei's an island. Um, And I always think it's more difficult for vegetarians and vegans on islands because so much of the cuisine is based on fish. And then you've got Mm. the uh, East Asian culture, which a lot of dishes, at least I found this in Japanese cooking especially, have things like bonita flakes, which are dried fish Mm. flesh. And if you ask, if you ask in a Japanese restaurant, we found this very true in Hawaii. They believe that the bonita flakes are vegetarian friendly, even vegan friendly. They don't think of it as a um, as a as a meat product, as a as a flesh product. So, my question mm-hmm. to you, Wendy, is: Did you find it difficult as a vegan to travel in Taiwan? Were these some issues that you faced? 
Um, yeah, that's interesting you brought it up about the Bonito flanks because I have been to Japan as well. Um, maybe we can talk about that some other day. Um, <laughs> but, and yeah, that is a challenge in, in Japan. There are lots of hidden, you know, um, fish-based ingredients in dishes. But no, I did not find that to be the case in Taiwan. Taiwan was actually really easy uh, to be vegan and probably one of the most vegan-friendly places I've ever been. Um, I mean, I'd say that traditional Chinese cuisine is already vegan-friendly enough. I mean, they do eat there are lots of, you know, different animals. I mean, they'll eat pretty much anything. There's a saying in Southern China that um, they'll eat anything with four legs except the table. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but they also use lots of vegetables and there's just such a huge variety in the cuisine. Uh, There are so many hundreds of different dishes that there are plenty of dishes that are vegan or can be made vegan. Um, But the difficulty in China is the language barrier um, because a lot of people don't really speak English very well. And it can be really challenging to try to explain what it is that you want. Uh, and they don't really have the concept of vegan. They don't really have mm. a word for it wow. uh, in their language because it's just not very common. I mean, there's a word for vegetarian, but it's kind of ambiguous whether that means uh, fully vegan or just vegetarian. Whereas in Taiwan, uh, it's a much better understood concept. Many Taiwanese people are vegan for religious reasons uh, or spiritual reasons, and they do have a word for it. Uh, it's the same language that in, in Mandarin Chinese, but there is a word in Mandarin Chinese that's used in Taiwan to mean you know, specifically vegan. And uh, so there are quite a few vegan restaurants and even more vegetarian restaurants. Vegetarian restaurants are absolutely everywhere on every street corner in in Taiwan. Um, The one thing that might be a bit tricky is that apparently a lot of the vegetarian meats, the kind of mock meats, do contain small amounts of egg or sometimes dairy. And if it's a vegetarian but not vegan restaurant, they might not really be aware of that or, or not think about that. So they might tell you that something is vegan, but actually, if you look at the, you know, the packaging of that meat that they're using, the mock meat, then it's not a fully vegan product. But in general, um, no, it's it's an amazing place to be vegan. Also, they speak English at a much higher level in Taiwan than they do in mainland China. So, um, you know, even if you don't speak any Chinese, it's it's pretty easy to to make yourself understood. And, um, you know, they might be familiar with the the English word vegan as well. So, yeah, it's a pretty great place. It's one of the top places I would recommend for for vegan travelers and particularly for anyone who's kind of worried if, you know, perhaps you're a new vegan or you haven't traveled that much as a vegan and you're worried about how that's going to go. I would say go to Taiwan. Let's talk about some of the dishes that you have in Taiwan. What are some of your favorite dishes? What are some of the characteristic dishes that a traveler might have when they go to Taiwan? Yeah, well, again, you also have a huge variety of of different dishes there. Um, there's lots of influence from different parts of China because um, many people came over, you know, uh, after the Civil War, um, when the communists took over in China, the Guomindang 
fled to Taiwan and those Guomindang soldiers and their families were from all different parts of China. Um, so they brought their own cuisine and eating traditions with them. And so you can find lots of different types of dishes from uh, different parts of, of China, all on this very small island. And then there's lots of Japanese influence as well, because Taiwan was actually a Japanese colony for about 50 years. Um, and you can see that in the culture. That's another interesting aspect of, of Taiwan, is that um, the culture feels very different from from China, even though obviously they do have a lot of, you know, they share a lot of history and a lot of you know, the roots of the culture are the same, but the the more recent history in the past few decades has led to lots of changes, I would say, in the, the character of the people. And I would say there are more aspects of, of Japanese character that have been taken on in Taiwan as well. But as far as the food goes, um, yeah, so you can find all different kinds of dishes. Uh, one of my favorites that I tried there was something called three cup three cups monkey head mushrooms. <laughs> that, all right, Wendy, that <laughs> doesn't exactly sound vegan when you've got monkey heads. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, they're monkey head mushrooms, so they're just mushrooms <laughs> that look like monkey heads. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no monkeys were harmed in the making of this dish. <laughs> Um, three cups is uh, actually a pretty popular and common Taiwanese dish or a kind of Taiwanese cooking method. So it refers to the three main ingredients that are in this this sauce that's used to make this dish, which is, I believe, sesame oil, rice wine, and soy sauce. Um, and so it's you can have it with different types of meat. The three cups chicken is a is a popular way to have it. But um, the place where I had it, they were serving it as three cups monkey head mushrooms. That's what they <laughs> called them in English. I don't remember what the Chinese was. Um, and it was a mushroom that I've never seen before, but it did look kind of furry. <laughs> um, <laughs> like a monkey head. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but it was really good. <laughs> and... Um... One of the things that I read on your blog, Wendy, it, that I, I always look for the for the markets, for the food halls and the markets when I go to a new town, and they have something called the uh, night markets there. And it sounded mm -hmm. really cool and fun. Tell me about that experience. Yes, the night markets in Taiwan are awesome. Um, I highly recommend it for you know anyone who enjoys food and foodie experiences in a country. It's a really big part of the culture there too. It's a really popular thing for Taiwanese Taiwanese people to do is to go to the mar night markets. Every city and town will have one, and the larger cities will have multiple night markets that you can choose from. They might not all be open every night of the week, so you just have to check the schedules and see which one is open on the night that you want to go. Um, but yeah, you can find lots of different food stalls there, and usually each stall will specialize in one particular dish. Um, and then you also have like carnival games and things like that. Oh, so cool. it's a real night out. Like it's a, you know, it's something fun to do. Um, and you can kind of spend your whole night there. It can get really busy. So a lot of times you'll have to queue up and, you know, wait in line at the different stalls. Uh, and the popular stalls can have really, really long lines, but Taiwanese people don't seem to mind waiting in line. Like, I guess, 
Um, you know, it's just something that they're used to, but do be prepared that you might have to do that. So you might want to go a little bit early uh, to try to beat the crowds if you know that it's a popular night market, especially. But it's a great place to, you know, try lots of different things. And it's very budget friendly, too. You know, they're they're usually quite cheap, uh, which means that you can, you know, go around the different stalls and you can get a real taste of um, of the cuisine and several local dishes that you can try, you know, all in one meal. So that's a lot of fun. So what are your, some of your favorite dishes to have at one of these night markets? What are some of the typical dishes that we might uh, get when we go there for a night of fun and entertainment? There were some mushroom dishes that I really liked. I mean, yeah, obviously uh, not all of them are going to be vegetarian or vegan. Uh, there is a specific vegetarian night market um or it's actually a collection of food stalls and food trucks that have kind of banded together to create a little veggie night market and then they will go around to the different night markets in different places around the country and they'll all set up together so they'll be like a vegetarian corner um you know of this night market so that makes it really easy because then you can you know that you can go to that specific section and and find something but there are some kind of accidentally vegan stuff as well that you can find in in lots of different places um sweet potato balls is one of them that comes to mind so they're just like little fried balls actually uh like what we were talking about in india on the the previous episode the gulab jamun they look like that but they're yeah, they're not nearly as sweet as that, though. They're they're a little bit sweet, but they're fried balls made out of sweet potato. And, uh, yeah, you can watch them frying them up and then, you know, they'll take them straight out of the fryer and you can eat them. Uh, and then you've got different kinds of dumplings, you know, like uh, pot stickers. Guotie is what they're called in, in Chinese. Uh, so they're fried just on one side and they kind of stick to the bottom of the pan and, you know, get all kind of crispy on the bottom. Yum. Those are really delicious, too. You know, when we think of markets here, produce markets and even in Europe, most of them are in the morning, during the day. I love the idea of a night market that combines food and entertainment. It gives it almost a carnival-like atmosphere, but even more fun than that, I would think, because you got so much cool food going on. Yeah, it really is like a carnival atmosphere, but it's something that you can do, you know, any night of the week, just about. You know, it's not like a carnival that only comes once a year. <laughs> So before I let you go, Wendy, um, you're based in Lisbon, and I love mm-hmm. Lisbon. I was there last year. I was surprised. It, it's so vegetarian and vegan friendly. I write about this on my website. One of my favorite restaurants there is called uh, AO26. We had a fantastic vegan meal there, one of my favorite meals that we've had in Europe recently. But my question to you is, the most famous pastry, of course, in Lisbon is the pastel de nada. And this is a custard mm-hmm. custard tart, obviously not vegan. Mm-hmm. How do you enjoy a pastel de nata in Lisbon as a vegan? Well, nowadays you can. There are actually several places where you can get a vegan pastel de nata, and you can even make your own. I've actually gone to a cooking class, a specific vegan pastel de nata cooking class, oh, cool. um, where she taught us how to, to make them. And yeah, we made them ourselves, and then we got to eat them when they were straight out of the oven, and oh, it was absolutely delicious. 
But yeah, as far as where you can, you know, if you don't want to go through the trouble of making your own, there are a couple of of veg restaurants that offer them. Uh, one that's in the center of town is Dateja, which is a, it's actually a local chain. It started in Porto and uh, had several locations in Porto. And then eventually they also opened a location here in Lisbon. So they have a vegan pastage de nata. And we actually have, and I haven't been here to been there to try it out yet, but there's a place called Vegan Nata, and that's all that they sell is vegan pastel de nata. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it's a little bit outside the city center, which is why I just haven't made it over there yet. But I'm dying to check it out because I imagine, I mean, I already love the ones at Dataha, and I've taken non-vegans there and you know they've tried both like pretty much back to back and said yeah this is just as good if not better you know i can't tell the difference between this one and and the traditional one that's at dateha but i imagine that vegan nata like since this is their specialty this is the one thing that they do i'm sure that they're going to do it really well so i'm really curious to try theirs well wendy it's been a pleasure talking to you again on the podcast about Taiwan and a little bit about Lisbon. Uh, wishing you uh, good health during these uh, difficult times. And hopefully we can get back out on the road real soon and try some of these great places that you've talked about. Yeah, I really hope that we can. And until then, stay safe, everybody. Okay, there you go. Wendy Werneth, The Nomadic Vegan. Her website is thenomadicvegan.com. She's got lots of info about Taiwan and many of the other countries she's been to. Plus, you can check out her books, Nine Steps to Easy Vegan Travel and Veggie Planet. And last time I checked in on Wendy, I think she's probably still out hiking. She was hiking with her husband the entire length of Portugal. And I think she's still out there right now. All right, that's it for this episode. Another Hall of Fame worthy one in the books. Next week, another good one. It's all about pizza. Until next Friday, get over to the DestinationEatDrink.com website for all your foodie travel needs. My latest blog post is about the favorite frozen treat in Rhode Island. It's unique and delicious, and that's at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and the Pope of Podcasting, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask, get your vaccination, and I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>